This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I've decided to call this Smooshy and Me. You'll find out why. Because Phil Demers is the person I'm going to tell you about. I'm not going to give you too much of an intro to him. We're going to let this story tell itself okay. a little bit. Let's just say he developed a special relationship with a walrus, and do? then that went on to define the next 10 years of his life. So let's go back to the start. Phil was a 21-year-old graduate. He went to a vocational school where he'd learned audio engineering and multimedia post-production. We can give him a job. This was back in 2000. According to him, he basically learned all of these skills, and he says, you know, within six months, half of it was a download. You know, it went obsolete really wow. quickly, oh, wow. but not just that. It was also quite difficult to get a job in film production because he lived in a town called Welland in southern Ontario, Canada. And it was just pretty far away from those prospects. Anything he was trying to do, uh, you know, was long distance, let's I, say. So his plan was to move to a bigger city where we'd have some opportunities. In the meantime, though, he thought, I need to make a little bit of money so that I can make this move. So he started trawling the local job adverts and happened upon one from Marineland, which was a Canadian um, aquatic zoo and amusement park around Niagara Falls. You know, suddenly this strange job came up that it was called a uh, marine mammal trainer's assistant and i read the details it was like thawing fish and cleaning buckets and i thought well you know this is at least interesting work and it's local i, I thought you know maybe i'll just give it a try i didn't, never imagine i was actually qualified for such a job uh, nor was i technically i would imagine but nonetheless my resume still was attractive to them they liked that i at 16 years of age i'd been certified for scuba uh, you know, with all my music uh, background, they assumed I'd be an asset in both building and uh, working the shows and, and et cetera, et cetera. So after a short uh, job interview, they, they offered me the job. And, you know, it was never a, a dream of mine to work with the animals. But lo and behold, with, within weeks to months of applying for this otherwise strange job, I was swimming with orcas. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was something he said he just fell into. Yet it really fit him, he says. And the swimming with orcas, of course, raises an eyebrow, as it yeah. did in this studio. He was one of those people who was performing in those shows that I think, did you ever go to see these when you were a kid? Yeah. I never did. Uh, SeaWorld, of course, and others. I, I never did, uh, but a well aware of them because they right. were making... Well, I'm pretty home. sure I saw these kind of shows as a kid when you're so unaware. And at that point in time, I think most of us were unaware about the cruelty behind them and how you know torturous it actually was for those animals and why that kind of thing shouldn't happen. But at the time, this was around the year 2000, he's kind of just going with the flow. We did end up reflecting on the nature of those shows, and we'll come to that. But first, what was that like to swim with orcas? Because how can you be prepared for something like that? And how terrifying is it actually? Well, the very first time that I ever swam with an orca, I had exactly zero experience, as, as anyone would. But the extent of which that I thought that I would try, I thought it would be like dip a toe eventually an ankle eventually get in the water up to your knees. Uh, this wasn't the case. The very first time that the trainers in the show stadium had elected to have me perform in a show, they called me. I was at the time working. So the, the park is separated in two, two aspects. It's like the front is the performance where there's shows, et cetera, in a stadium. In the back, it was more of a, a display area. So I was working at the back with the whales, and I got a call from the trainers up front and said, listen, we want you to come up, uh, put a wetsuit on. We got a surprise for you. I thought, okay, well, what could this be? So I, I showed up in a wetsuit and it was already mid-show and they said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out on stage. You're going to dive into the middle of the pool and you're going to spread your legs and the orca is going to come between your legs, pick you up and it's going to go into the uh, shallow area and you're going to do like a presentation. You're going to be sitting on the orca's back 
and the orca is going to put their, her face up and her tail up, and it's going to be a beautiful moment. I had never been in the water with an orca, so of course I was very nervous. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Of course, uh, the, uh, the the orca was better trained than I was, which is the good news. So we did ultimately perform the little stunt, and uh, it, it wasn't the best execution I had. Uh, but again, with no training, this is just what became. Eventually, over time, you obviously be, you uh, you establish a relationship with the animals, et cetera, and you you want to definitely get some one on one work with the animals before ever actually swimming with them. But you know, my experience was a little bit unique. Yeah, talk about the definition of sink or swim at a job. You know, yeah, when somebody gives God. you a task, and would you, you think, do it? No, of course not. I would no get chance. in the water with orcas, having never been no in chance. the water what with them you before. You just accepted a job as a marine mammal helper or whatever it was. The <laughs> you official think that's job just title. part of it, right? Well, yeah, you just kind of you've signed up then. Yeah. Well, this is one of those things. You know, he said it was a cool experience, but reflecting back, of course, he said, for any orca in captivity, life is an injustice. Yeah. You can't rationalize that. It's of course a different thing to look back on in hindsight as well, because he said 2000. It was a different era. It was still a celebrated industry. Yeah. And so at the time, he said it made sense to him. He wasn't really questioning it initially. Of course, he says, we know now today that bringing them into captivity is very much like torture to them, thanks to whistleblowers, thanks to scientists. But he didn't draw that conclusion basically 20 years ago. That took him some time to eventually get to. I want to get to the main character now of this story, Smushy the Walrus, who arrived at Marineland one day. So Phil told me a little bit about their very first meeting. I mean, if there's one thing that can be said about walruses, no matter how unappealing they may look in uh, in adult and when, once they reach their thousands of pounds of weight, they are absolutely gorgeous, cute little puppy dogs when they are babies. And when Smooshy came in at a little under 200 pounds at about 18 months of age, she was just she was just gorgeous, beautiful, so vulnerable, so innocent. As with all baby walruses, I mean, she didn't stand out as different to any other baby walrus. And this was at a time when, you know, Marina was bringing in quite a few, uh, you know, wild-caught uh, baby walruses from Russia. And so my first impression of Smooshy was, uh, you know, she's this small, vulnerable being that I certainly want to make sure uh, I can ease the transition from, you know, having a wild life into this new uh, captive world. You know, my job is to make sure that it's as seamless as possible. But, uh, you know, as, as things progressed and as things started to happen at Marineland, uh, you know, we would eventually have this uh, situation occur where I imprinted on her and it was... Uh, you know, it was a very, it was a singular moment in time when she was, you know, at a heightened state of emotion while we were trying to do a sort of uh, intrusive uh, medical procedure on another walrus. Smooshy tried to defend the other walrus and protect her. And in my trying to lure Smooshy away from the scene so as to keep her from impeding this, uh, you know, this medical intervention we were, we were undergoing, um, I put my hands in front of her face and she took this big breath and she inhaled the smell of my hands and, and her eyes absorbed what I looked like and her ears absorbed what I sound like. And what happened is I imprinted on her as scientists would say. And, and what that means is in the wild, when you're dealing with animals such as walruses that live in herds of, of you know thousands, they have to be able to identify their mothers within these, these groups. And so what happens is this imprinting so that mother and baby can, can constantly find each other in these, uh, you know, in these herds. And this is what happened with Smooshy and I. So whereas at least initially she was, you know, no different than any other baby walruses, very quickly after uh, she'd arrived to Marineland, things changed very quickly. Things changed as in she thought, Smooshy, that this fella was her mum. Yep. I can't imagine her breath was great up close either. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, if his was bad, hers would have melted through walls, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's a good point. The thing is, he says that Smooshy imprinted on her. Yeah. So he explains the idea of Smooshy saying, you're my parent, yeah. in the mm. absence of a parent. Now, wildlife specialists have disagreed with the possibility of this, but for sure they developed a strong bond from that point on. In fact, you can see it on his social media. He's got photos of him and Smooshy when Smooshy was young, just kind of following him around. So what does it mean to have a bond with a walrus? <laughs> was, of course, a question that I had. Bill said that Smooshy followed him everywhere, but there was more to it than just that. Basically, what it means is she would see me as her mother. And so she would. She was frantic every time we were apart. And so if we were not together, she was frantically calling out for me, if, especially if she heard me, if she knew I was in the building. She was extremely protective of me. So, you know, obviously I would, I would have her be by my side as often as I could. And what that meant was, you know, generally going about my day, my workday with this baby walrus beside me because I mean, frankly, it was the best thing for her because she just, she had that separation anxiety. And so I just would uh, suddenly, it's just my job changed incredibly, you know, all of a sudden I got this baby walrus following me absolutely everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean, she would go to the ends of the earth with me and with no nerves whatsoever. She was never nervous. As long as she was close to me, I could take her absolutely anywhere. So how did my day change? Well, if we went to go feed belugas, whales at the back of the park, well, I would bring Smooshy with me. We would just load her up in the back of the truck. This is something that would take years to train a walrus. And even then, even if you acclimated a walrus to, uh, to become comfortable to, to go, you know, to travel some distances in the back of a truck, what's to say she doesn't or he doesn't get nervous in that moment and then suddenly, you know, break from your, you know, quote unquote control as a trainer and a, and a performing animal generally have in their, in their relationships. The thing of Smooshy and I is, we didn't need that fish at all. She was going to stand stand beside me at any cost, at any price. <laughs> so this this really changed our lives. So suddenly I was I was over and above performing in shows. I was now watching the shows. And I would have Smooshy just join me in the crowd. We would just walk among the public. Again, all pictures and stuff you can see on my social media. She was also incredibly protective of me, which meant if you got anywhere near me and she got a sense that you were, you know, be it threatening or you know, if she, if she was unsure of you, if she was, if she didn't know you very well, she'd get between the two of us and uh, she'd move you. If you got too close, close, she would move you to the point where she would actually get a little bit aggressive. So we had to sort of monitor that and make sure that she understood that there were times where, where rather 99% of the times that she believed I was threatened, she'd have to understand that this was not in fact the case. Uh, oddly in spending as much time as I did with Smooshy, she, she sort of developed my sense of humor. And this is where you might want to call me crazy, but you know, you are speaking to a walrus mom. Sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> she's not chuckling also, she's not a bouncer. McIntyre. She'd get in between you. Yep. Like, what Come would on, she, you can she'd get it. in your grill. You can imagine it. If, you're, if got... your pup was feeling really defensive of you and she's thought you were in trouble. Yeah. Like, they're not exactly graceful on land. <laughs> Like, you said security guard. I've just got this image of Craig yeah. Stadler, the golfer, who was known as the walrus, just getting in between. Exactly. You know? Where do you think you're going? <laughs> it's all a bit bizarre, but I'm loving it. It's so good. Now, his relationship with Smooshy is developing. It's evolving in this really beautiful way. At the same time, his relationship with Marineland, the company, starts to fall apart. He'd been working there for 12 years, but had decided it was time to leave. Now, this is according to him. Of course, we're just hearing this from his point of view. Um, the conditions at Marineland Marineland had started to deteriorate to the point that he said he couldn't bear to stay there anymore. He gave me an example to say the water disinfection unit broke, but they didn't bother oh. to fix 
it and let the animal suffer through it. And so he said, here he is in this situation where he doesn't have the power to change things from the inside. So he can't stay, but he also feels like he can't leave and not do anything about it. He's a bit stuck, but the solution presented itself in a very unique way. Well, near the end of the winter and the beginning of the summer, which is when we were to open, um, this is when I'd resolved that there's no way that I can, in good conscience, continue to put on this spectacle and pretend like things are okay when animals are grossly suffering and dying. And so, the, you know, the story takes a strange turn here, but uh, I'd applied to be on a reality TV show uh, sometime before the conditions had gotten all crazy. And I'd actually gotten on the show. Now, I got on the show. It was called Wipeout Canada. So it's, uh, you know, it's sort of this parkour, like, uh, over-the-top crazy comedy of, you know, you sort of run this uh, this gauntlet of, uh, it's kind of this crazy course. But nonetheless, the winner takes home, you know, some monies. Well, I only got on the show based on much of the media attention we had gotten, uh, Smooshy and I, back in 2008, when this was a fluff story of just how beautiful this relationship was. You know, we'd, we'd gotten quite a bit of the world's attention at the time before things went south. So I'd applied to be on this reality TV show. I'd gone on it, and I won the reality TV show. So what that meant was suddenly I had become enriched with an, an extra 50000 Canadian dollars, which I otherwise didn't have. Now, my resolve once I got that money was, okay, I got this money because of my unique relationship with Smooshy. I can do nothing with this money unless I can do something to benefit Smooshy the Walrus. This is just, this is not merely my money. This is when I resolved, okay, I've got enough money now that I can quit this job. I can speak to the media, given how awful the situation is. You know, it, it was that money that ultimately uh, allowed for me to retain lawyers, give them, uh, you know, a great deal of money and get me through, through the first year or two of, uh, of uh, litigation. So, I mean, really that reality TV show and, and that win by virtue of not having gone on it, uh, really none of, of everything that's happened in the last decade could have been possible. It is a remarkable story, really. This is the part where you start to question what he's telling you. First, he's saying, I'm a walrus mom. Mm. And then he says he won Wipeout Canada. I mean, he's, he's multi-talented. Really <laughs> he totally is. So, of course, I did look it up, and here's a little bit of him they loved. You can tell they love the whole walrus trainer theme. Back up for another attempt. Oh, right back down on his face. There's no amusement so far for Philip in this water park. Tusk, tusk, tusk. Moving on to the sucker punch wall. Now all he has to do is get across the platform. And holy sea cow, he's down already. He is the walrus. He is the mud man. Goo, goo, gachoo. Now up to the big balls. He Niagara Falls into the water. The trainer learns a new trick from the big balls. Well worth the price of admission. Oh, Lord. So it's How long do they spend rehearsing that? Exactly. It's absolutely absurd. And yet, the money that he got from winning Wipeout Canada is what allowed him to be an activist. Because actually, as one of our listeners has pointed out, that um, there were a lot of atrocities at Marineland. Somebody saying that I'm from Niagara Falls, Ontario, living in Dubai. We are all aware of the atrocities that Marineland has played our city with. They're boycotted by all residents of the area and need to be shut down. So this is what enabled Phil to actually become an activist against them because he finally had the cash to be able to do that. 
So uh, he did say he was one of 19 on this course and he was desperate from the money and that's what created options for him. That's what he credits to winning this particular thing. So the check hit his bank account just before the park was due to open for the season. So he quit in 2012. That was after 12 years of working there. And that's when he started a decade long legal battle between Phil and Marineland. So I had media calling me a lot after I had quit and they wanted to know why I had quit. And I wasn't intent on speaking. I knew Marineland was litigious in its history. I knew that the, uh, but you know, I had, I had made an, an agreement with Marineland that I'll quit, but I have to be able to stay in Smooshy's life because she needs me. She needs me for both her mental health and for her physical health. So I, I had to be able to, to remain a part of her life. And I was not quitting unless this was, this was understood. And so we came to that agreement. Unfortunately, in that month that I'd been gone and that I elected to come back, uh, they did not keep their end of the, of the bargain. Smooshy's condition uh, deteriorated incredibly. The veterinarians, uh, ultimately one day when I did show up to the park and they tried to keep me out. And you know, it's a long story of how I eventually did get in, but I did get in. The vets apologized to me profusely after I seen Smooshy and, and the condition she was in. They said, we weren't allowed to tell you. You know, there was nothing that, you know, they, they tried to explain to me that, you know, there was, they, they wanted to tell me, but they couldn't. And so we immediately started to give her medication, hydrate her, give her food. She started to eat as soon as she recognized me. You know, I got, gave her the medications and whatnot. And I went home that night and uh, I thought about it not for very long. And I picked up the phone, I called the media and I said, listen, Whereas I was apprehensive to speak before, I am prepared. Now you put my name, you put my face, none of this anonymity stuff. You get the press, you get the machines uh, spitting these this stories out, and you get them out. And then after that, it was just game on. And so, uh, you know, the, the Toronto Star at the time published the initial uh, Marineland investigation, investigation series. And, uh, and that was it. Uh, just very few months later, Marineland waited till the park had closed down. They waited till a little bit of the press had sort of quieted. Uh, and that's when they ultimately decided to sue me. So they waited till February 13, uh, 2013. So we're, we're just coming up on the 10 year anniversary and they sued me for plotting to steal Smooshy the walrus and they were demanding a sum of $1.5 million from the So what he was sued for, to be clear, was for plotting to steal the walrus. The big question is, was he plotting to steal Smooshy the walrus? Okay, so the reason I'm here is because uh, police got a call from uh, Marineland uh, expressing some concern. So there was a Twitter message that you sent yesterday on July 23rd saying, life is short steal a walrus. <laughs> so to be clear, they are, they called the police because they are worried that he's about to the steal walrus, a walrus. Presumably at this point, the walrus is about half a ton in weight. It's a fully grown adult walrus now. By then, it, I would imagine it would be. Yeah. So yeah it's not, must have been. not the most easily stealable thing. <laughs> conspicuous, is it? It certainly <laughs> isn't. Can you imagine being that police officer yeah. having to show up to somebody's house? Imagine having to leg it with a walrus like, <laughs> come on, run! I know you're not like grey overland, but just put some flippers into it. Come on. Yeah, all the while, Phil is in it legal battle that's been going on for 10 years. He then submits a defense, countersues them for the same amount, 1.5 million Canadian dollars, sues them for essentially what he called abusive process, an attempt to silence his voice. Then there's just litigation, legal motions. He's refusing to settle with them until they agree to his terms. So that led me to the obvious question. Was he actually planning on stealing Smushy the walrus? Only after they sued me. (laughs) It never once occurred to me that there was even a conceivable way of stealing a walrus until they sued me with this insane lawsuit. And then with every which way that I spoke to lawyers about what the outcomes of this were, 
you know, they kept coming back to, you know, settlement, settlement, settlements. I said, okay, so it's conceivable that if I take them to the eve of trial, you know, I could force them into a settlement where I can actually steal these walruses. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my lawyer would have called me crazy at the time. Uh, everybody in the newspaper, everyone in the press, all my friends, my family would have called me crazy at the time. But here we are now, um, a decade later, and we have signed a settlement where which Marineland are now forced by the date of March 21st, 2023, to move Smooshy and her baby, because she's had a calf named Koyak, to a... Um, AZA accredited facility in the US. Fantastic. So he doesn't know exactly which facility it's going to be, but he said automatically by the fact of these credentials, it's going to be 10 times better than Smooshy's current conditions. So since then, he's been back to see Smooshy once, um, of course, put some visitation into this settlement. It had been nine years at that point since he had seen her, and he said it was like going back into a nightmare to finish a dream. So the conditions had gotten even worse at Marineland in the park, but he is looking forward very much to getting Smooshy out soon. So I did ask him what's next for him after all this. I mean, it's really defined his life, if you think about it. He said he's looking to start his own not-for-profit animal welfare organization. Uh, so if you do want to find out a little bit more and see some of these photos of Smooshy and him, he's at walrus underscore whisperer on Instagram. Do it now. What a great gentleman he is. And the good news for all involved is Smooshy, come March, will be moved. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.